If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for April the 2nd, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this weekly program where we take a look at the news of the week and often the events of my usually bizarre life and where we provide you with at least a two-hour bastion of rationality and honesty in this very strange world in which we now live in the post-Trump America. And speaking of post-Trump America... As is usually the case in hour number two, we try to provide you with an interesting guest, and we're going to do that again this week. Post-Trump America, to me, means the issue of fake news from all sides of the aisle is first and foremost, especially within the media environment. And our guest is a guy by the name of David Mickelson. Now, you probably don't know that name, but I'm pretty sure you know the website that he founded, which is Snopes.com. Snopes.com has become now famous for combating fake news of all sorts, well before even the Trump phenomenon, but now certainly in the era of Trump that has taken on more meaning and significance. And uh, I had a chance to speak in person this week with David at his home in Southern California. I only recently learned after he did an interview with CNN that he lives pretty close to where I do, or at least he did until this week, because literally the U-Haul moving vans were outside of his house. Like a, like a lot of white, successful people, he seems to be getting out of Dodge when it comes to leaving the state of California. But I spent about 45 minutes with David, and here was our very interesting conversation. David, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, lots of reasons I wanted to speak to you. Uh, obviously, you are the, uh, the founder of Snopes, which has become very well known for battling this phenomenon of fake news. Before we get into all the, the subject matter related to fake news, tell people who are unfamiliar with the website how it evolved and what it is that you guys do. Well, I started the website back in the mid-90s just as kind of a hobby as an outlet for my interest in urban legends and creative writing. And uh, because I was on the Internet so early, even before search engines, long before social media, site kind of took a left turn from what I was expecting to do and became the place where everybody started forwarding anything questionable they came across on the Internet. So it sort of diverged into not just chronicling urban legends, but dealing with scams and hoaxes and political screeds and crime warnings and fake photographs. What would you consider to be the – was there one story that kind of uh, put – the website on the map or that really changed things or where you realized you, you guys were getting traction in, in, uh, in what you were doing? Yeah. Um, immediately after the September 11 attacks, uh, there was a piece that started circulating about how Nostradamus had supposedly predicted the attacks. And it was really just something a Canadian student had made up sometime earlier to show how you could apply some vague prophecy to just about anything. But we sort of got a page about that up within the day, and it started drawing a huge amount of traffic. And then just the whole 
series of rumors and conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 took off, and we were kind of the only ones chronicling that at the time. The traditional news media really weren't into writing about what was going on at the on the Internet itself yet, so we got a lot of traffic and a lot of coverage out of that, and that was kind of the upward swing. How would you compare what happened post 9-11 to what has happened post Donald Trump with regard to the impact on the website on the issue of fake news? Well, there wasn't any one big spike with Donald Trump. It was, you know, every election brings a lot more traffic because there's a lot more rumors and misinformation and political propaganda going around. But um, sort of the nature of this election and the involvement of people on social media for various reasons trying to put out exaggerated and fake news, you know, has exacerbated the phenomenon, but also, of course, we're now far from the only ones covering this type of material, so it's kind of shot up on both sides. But, you know, obviously, and we'll talk more about Trump as we go along here, but Trump is someone who has kind of coined the term fake news as well as creating a lot of it on his own. I mean, so he's kind of like the patron saint of this issue, isn't he? Yeah, I I mean, I think everyone is familiar with the idea that politicians don't always tell the truth for a number of reasons, because it's just not political to do so in some cases, or because at higher levels it involves issues of security and negotiations they just can't reveal. But I think the the press long knew from what press secretaries and officials said or didn't say or how they said it uh, to decode what they really meant, even if they didn't actually say it. So we kind of understood what was going on, even if it wasn't expressed truthfully. But sort of President Trump's been kind of the first one to just dispute matters of real, no real consequence that are easily disproved, like was his inauguration the most viewed in history or you know things like you know 3 or 30 million people whatever number you want to take voted illegally for which there is no real documentation yeah yeah i mean obviously there's a lot of different elements to uh to trump's impact here i i'm curious do you find uh, any irony and or frustration in the idea that trump is taking advantage of the very phenomenon of fake news that he pretends to disparage. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I think it's going to take uh, you know the the regular press and perhaps fact checkers too a while to catch up with how do we best approach this, where it's not only someone is spreading misinformation, but actively holding out that the people who are trying to correct it are the ones spreading the false information and perhaps the approach we've been using all this time isn't the the best one for getting that message across. What do you think that the best method would be? Well, we haven't hit on it yet, but I said, you know, just these the straight ahead, you know, fact checks and debunkings that then get disclaimed as being more fake news may, may need to find some other approaches. Now, before we get into the issue itself, I want to make sure people have a little bit better handle on, on Snopes and, and the website and, and what you guys do. We're here in Calabasas, California, uh, which is not actually your headquarters. You said there is really no headquarters. Give us a sense of how you guys do what you do. Well, we're sort of a virtual team that's geographically dispersed across the U.S. And How many people do you have on the team? The editorial team is about a dozen people now. Um, and we, you know, work in collaboration. I mean, we're all communicating throughout the day on Slack, like most teams do, about you know, coordinating what stories we're going to write about and how we're going to approach them and contributing research and information um, and working them out and getting them edited and up on the site. So it's not a whole lot different than if people were all sitting in the same room other than we're not looking at each other. <laughs> Now, why do you, what is your theory, David, about why it is that fake news stories become oftentimes more popular than real news stories? In fact, it's becoming 
uh, incredibly commonplace for that to be the case. What is your theory as to what's driving that? Well, certainly there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the infamous filter bubbles, which is, you know, these stories appeal to people because people sort of seek out news and other information that tells them what they want to hear or what they already believe or what they're inclined to believe. So they tend to, if they, you know, they tend to focus on those in some cases, given the way people encounter news on you know, through social media today uh, and on the web, they may only be seeing news that agrees with them. And even if they're not, they sort of disdain what contradicts what they're inclined to believe and just focus on what confirms it. So it's it's kind of like cable television where you used to have three networks and a handful of local stations. And now, if you want, you can watch golf 24 hours a day. So it's well, kind of I, like, like, I, I, I like that personally. Yeah. But other than the golf channel, I hate the fragmentation. Uh, yeah. I, I, give me the four channels and the golf channel, and I'll be okay. Yeah. But, no, but in all seriousness, you, you make a really important point, one that I've tried to make constantly, which is that before, this is probably not new in humanity. We've always wanted to hear what we like to hear, what makes us feel better about ourselves. We just never had that option before the internet, right? In general, yes. With the, as you call it, fragmentation and specialization in just about all forms of media and entertainment, it's easier and easier to just be exposed to what it is you want to see. Um, and, you know, you can always find something on Netflix or Amazon or any one of the, you know, dozens or hundreds of other streaming channels. You don't have to watch what the movie of the week that the network TV is offering. So it's kind of the same in the news industry. You can just pick and choose the news you want. And we certainly saw that a lot in this election on both sides. But in my opinion, as a, as a person who's been a conservative all my life and was horrified by what I was watching, uh, it, it, it's my personal opinion that the, the most fervent Trump uh, supporters are very cult-like in their, in their uh, admiration for him as well as their willingness to believe anything uh, that was both positive about him or especially negative about Hillary. I mean, talk about some of the n- ridiculous negative about Hillary stories that got enormous traction online and why you think that might have happened. Well, I think fervent supporters of anything tend to be cult-like. It's not necessarily uh, restricted to a particular party. But, um, well, in general, your question, of course... Uh, Donald Trump's opposition was Hillary Clinton, so of course they would, you know, his fervent supporters would be seeking to popularize anything negative about her. I mean, it is kind of odd in a sense that it keeps, has kept going somewhat even after the election has long since been decided, uh, perhaps driven apart by the current president's personality, I say, in that. You know, it's not enough to be the winner <laughs> to show that you thoroughly vanquished your opponent. But um, And it's also, it's not really clear whether or not Hillary Clinton is out of the political scene or not. I mean, usually a defeated presidential opponent, that's the end of their political career. But, you know, she's still there in the background and nobody's really quite sure what she's going to do. Well, but taking this out of the theoretical, maybe more into the practical or more specific, one story that stands out to me is this Pizzagate story (laughs) that has gotten enormous amounts of uh, online coverage. And to this day, no matter how much has been debunked, the Trump supporters still believe in it. Can Can you give us a sense of how the Pizzagate mythology got created and and what we can make of it well you know the pizza gate theory in general was that this pizzeria was running a sort of sex trafficking ring for pedophiles that hillary clinton and others were somehow involved in running which is kind of about the most far-fetched rumor i can think of but i think in a general sense it's not really that it's about hillary clinton it's kind of like the Kennedy assassination or 9-11. It's just some intriguing conspiracy that people like to latch on to. And at this point, it's no longer about trying to denigrate Hillary Clinton. It's just this 
kind of conspiracy that attracts the conspiracy buffs and you know they're going to they're going to stay with it because it's like anything else in, in in the conspiracy land you can't ever disprove that it you know it, it that it happened you know you can just say there's no evidence for it but people will still be out there saying that's part of the conspiracy all right well let's talk a little bit more about uh the nature of humanity that allows this fake uh, news phenomenon to have grown so much. Yeah. It, not only do people tend to believe what they want to believe, and that's not just a tendency. In yeah. my opinion, that's almost a, a, a rule yeah. uh, nowadays. But also stories that appear to be popular mm-hmm. uh, get on a moment, take on a momentum of their own. Uh, in a way that allows them to be far more viral, um, much more shareable. And so if people think a story is popular, it it gives it weight in and of itself and creates eff- effectively this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, as you said, it, it's sort of long been a universal phenomenon that People have certain beliefs and will tend to stick with them. That's not new, but uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the new digital era that may be exacerbating it in the sense that people tend to react differently when they're dealing with people face-to-face than uh, sort of impersonally over the Internet. And if you had people in a room together they you know where they were having to defend or discuss their beliefs and where they were perhaps encountering that this thing they're seeing on the internet isn't really as popular as they thought it was they react differently so yes it is kind of hard in isolation when you're seeing say the same thing pop up on your facebook feed repeatedly not to think wow this, this is a really big story it's out there everywhere but you're only seeing a tiny sliver of facebook and an even smaller sliver of the internet as a whole and it's it's really easy to get a mistaken impression about the the popularity of various stories well and it's Twitter and Facebook lend themselves to this phenomenon of popularity feeding on itself, or at least the perception of popularity, because the first thing you look at, even before you look at the of what's in the article, you see the headline, and then you yes. see the number of retweets and likes, or the number of shares, or the number of views if it's a video, mm-hmm. and so... So that actually becomes more important than the substance of the story because people think, well, if it's got 5,000 shares, it must be real. It can't yeah. be fake, right? Well, yes, and it's unfortunate, of course, that uh, some of those numbers get driven by, say, bots that are <laughs> created just to drive up those numbers. Well, or- let's, let's talk about that for a second. 60 Minutes did a story uh, the, the last night as, as we're doing this interview on a, on a Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they went into that. How does that work? How does how does this fake popularity get created about these these stories that go supposedly viral? Well, there are a number of ways. As I said, people can just sort of use software, create bots that aren't really real people who are driving up the numbers by sort of automatically sharing and liking posts and it's always a cat and mouse game with the social media companies to try and weed them out while the other side tries to create more ingenious bots and of course you can also essentially pay to promote your stories on social media or you can buy likes you know you can pay for followers so the numbers don't really necessarily reflect the popularity of any given story but it but the perception of popularity yeah. has an impact on its popularity doesn't yes, it not? That, that's true it's it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy if people see something that appears to be popular and then share it because they think it's popular thereby making it popular yeah that's, and they also think it's credible yeah, well, that's, again, something that's long been true uh, well before the digital era, that people equate 
popularity with importance or credibility, and that isn't necessarily the case. Really? You mean, <laughs> are you telling me that if if something gets retweeted 100,000 times, it doesn't make it true? <laughs> no. I, I heard that people used to buy, like, tabloid newspapers with the craziest stories, and they sold very well. You know, but uh, that's... You know, as I said, it's long been a part of the industry, you know, the news and entertainment that uh, popularity is equated with, with you know, weight. Um, I've actually had mainstream news reporters tell me that they knew that they're reporting on stories that I knew way more about it than they did, and I knew what they were reporting was wrong, that they knew their reporting was good because it was popular. Talking about USA Today reporters. Uh-huh. Does that surprise you? No, unfortunately. Um, you know, we've seen, and um, all the, even with all the brouhaha lately over fake news, it is um, sad to see that there is still a lot of news that is reported in a way to garner an audience rather than sort of be informative that... Um, we see it a lot with, say, some supposed new form of crime or scam that springs up and dozens and dozens of news outlets are running articles about, you know, be aware of this, don't fall a victim to it. And you find that nobody can really document that this is a widespread form of crime or is has ever happened to anyone anywhere but everyone's eager to spread the warning because that what's grab that's what grabs attention. But whether it's anything some people need to actually be wary of, kind of gets lost in the mix. Nobody's actually interested in tracking down. Gee, is this kind of scam plausible? Is anybody using it? It's well, it's it's like the summer uh, annual summer obsession with sharks, you know, shark, shark <laughs> yes. attacks. But um, yeah. let's, you mentioned the bots yes. that create this fake. Uh, perception of popularity. That presumes that there's a profit motive here. And there have been a lot of stories indicating that people have made a lot of money from these fake news stories, that it's not just about promoting a political agenda. And, you know, there was a lot of attention during the campaign on these Macedonian teenagers who were spreading fake stories uh, in a pro-Trump fashion, and they found that the Americans were so gullible that they would buy into this and that they were all making lots of money in Macedonia uh, because of this. I was somewhat skeptical. Uh, I'm not an expert in this realm, but you are. Give us a sense of how easy it would be for these Macedonian teenagers to make a significant profit on doing this, creating these fake news stories that they knew would go viral in the United States during an election campaign. Well, since... I have been running a website for 20-something years that has always made its revenue from advertising. Uh, I have a pretty good idea of what online advertising pays. So if you can get fake viral stories out there, um, it's not inconceivable that someone doing that can make easily a few thousand dollars a day. Um, now they probably have pretty short lifespans because <clears throat> you know, they, they tend to get debunked fairly quickly and people are so bombarded with stuff that they move on to the next story you know, in, in short order. But um, something that really grabs people's attention and really speaks to what they want to believe, get it out there, and it, it easily all takes is a day or two to rack up enough views, uh, especially if you're getting it posted all over social media that, you know, it said it could, it could pay a few thousand in a, in a day or two's time. So you believe those stories about the Macedonian teenagers? Well, in, in a very broad sense, I don't know if they're actually teenagers or in Macedonia, but I mean, <laughs> in, in fake news in general, yes, I know that, you know, there's, there, there is a, a good deal of profit to be made. And of course there's been a lot of discussion and some effort about cracking down on, you know, um, advertising agencies supplying ads to those kinds of sites and advertisers not wanting to be on them. It's, it's again, the, the industry has changed, whereas, you know, 
from you know a model of advertisers advertisers specifically buying space on particular websites to just sort of an automated real time bidding process where you know ads are just sort of automatically funneled to whichever site was willing <laughs> to take the the price they're offering to pay um so there has to be some intervention to filter out particular sites and um you know some some work on the algorithms but you know there has been a lot of discussion about trying to remove the 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 profit motive from fake news and also in the pro process sort of free up some of that advertising to fund the ones who are fighting fake news because we're all we're all competing for the you know the same slices of pie well would you say in general, though, that the slice of the, the pie of people who want the real truth is much smaller than the pie of people who would rather the, get the, the convenient fake news? Is that a fair assessment? Well, I'd say at this point, the uh, the fake news fighters are getting smaller slices of pie than the, <laughs> the fake news generators, yes, mostly because there's a lot more of them than there yeah. are of us. Okay. And now, you also mentioned uh, this controversy over trying to take the profit motive out of this. Yeah. And I know Facebook has, has been at the center of, of uh, a lot of the controversy, and they have put out some statements and even I, I held a symposium on it, and mm-hmm. they've done some things that that they, they claim are fighting this. Yet on my Facebook page, I still routinely <laughs> see obviously fake stories that are being advertised there prominently on my, on my timeline. Uh, what do you make of what Facebook is doing in comparison to what they should be doing? Well, um, we are one of the partners working with Facebook to help them sort of flag fake news stories and alert the readers to, um, you know, things that have been disputed by fact checkers. But um, as I mentioned in our initial discussions with them, as I knew from long experience, when you start flagging things as false, people assume that anything that isn't flagged is therefore true, as if you have infinite resources Mm. (laughs) to correct every falsehood. I mean, you know, we've been hearing that for years where you know, people will say, you know, they came to Snopes and looked for something and didn't find it. That must mean it's true. Well, it doesn't mean that. It does. It means we don't have unlimited time and staff and money to to correct everything out on the internet. So, you know, that's one of the pitfalls of trying to implement that kind of system. Is you know, you can only get to a finite number of right. of items a day, and you know, false. Uh, Facebook, of course, isn't doing it themselves. They're just sort of tying into, you know, the prominent fact-check sites out there. But how how would you grade how Facebook is doing on this? Well, it's kind of tough to grade them because I don't know that they necessarily should have to be doing anything about it. I mean, they've Mm. kind of been the focus, but, you know, they're kind of in in a tough position because they aren't creating the material themselves. They're just sort of like a very large bulletin board where people are posting things. And if but, they, but if they're taking ads, they're taking money for, to, yeah. to promote stories that are obviously false. I mean, don't they have some responsibility there? Well, yes, but the problem is what's obviously false is only a small subset of things because you start moving into things that have some small element to truth of the, about them oh. or they're, they're not you can write things that are completely politically slanted but are 100% accurate. Right. And ha- if you only report one side of the story, it's misleading, but it's accurate. So how do you deal with that? No, you make an incredibly important point, and I'm, I'm a free speech advocate, and uh, in, where you're drawing the line here is exceedingly difficult. Uh, it, 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 in a way, it's kind of like you know the old definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. <laughs> yes. Um, and 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 so I sympathize with the the problem here, but mm-hmm. but I also think that Facebook is making money uh, from this issue, uh, yeah. and whether they can do more or not, I think is, is open for debate. Um, did you want to say something else on that? Well, when when we st- started doing this, or let's say backing up a few years, you know, we were using fake news in a very narrow sense, that it referred to 
specifically the sites that had sprung up in the past few years that were just doing completely fabricated, you know, ridiculous stories like, you know, a woman gives birth to a litter of kittens in right. an elevator, and you know, those are pretty easy to debunk. They you know, just simply didn't happen. It's all fake. But uh, in this last election cycle, that term has sort of grown to encompass everything from, you know, propaganda to just bad journalism to, you know, very slanted partisan, or as they call them, hyper-partisan websites. And, you know, the degree of truthfulness to them is, you know, varies quite a bit. And so you can't really just slap them all with a label of fake. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's anybody, whether it's us or Facebook or anyone trying to deal with that, you run into the slippery slope problem of, right. you know, if, you know, if, you know the the National Enquirer is is fake news, but you know what do you call you know some site with the political slant? Like you can't say everything on Breitbart is false; it's fake news, but it has an obvious slant to it, right? You know, and you can't just kick them off of Facebook and right. not not run afoul of some you know free speech issues, not that Facebook is the right. government, so it's not technically free speech, but, right. you know, Facebook is in the business of right. showing people information they want, and, you know, they're... You know. I know, I get it. It's a complex and difficult yeah. issue. One of the elements of this in the broader scheme that I want to talk to you about is how the Internet in general, and, and specifically Facebook and Twitter, have put all the emphasis on the headline. Yes. In the in the old days of a newspaper, headlines were important, but they weren't everything because your eye was still likely to see what was in the body of the work. Uh-huh. Now headlines are all that matter. Yes. I, I, when I write my own columns, and I hate this because I don't, I, I'm a substance guy, <laughs> and so I spend you know 99 percent of the effort on what I'm actually writing in the substance of the article, and the headline to me. I I don't put nearly as much attention to, even though I should, because it's the headline that's going to determine how many people see it in this day and age. And headlines, a deceiving headline is far more likely to get traffic than a truthful headline, correct? Yes. Um, Well, as you said, I think even back in the the print newspaper days that there were a lot of people who only read the headlines, but... uh, you know, as you noted, even that at least then you the body of the article was still immediately below it, and you were mm. probably couldn't help but see subheads and the introductory mm. paragraphs. Where yes, on social media, pretty much all you're seeing is a headline and maybe uh, one sentence or part of a sentence synopsis. And a lot of sites, yes, are in the business of deliberately crafting headlines that are not in any way supported by the text of the article, like, you know, uh, you know, impeachment process against Trump begins. And if you actually read the underlying (laughs) article, it's about, you know, one person somewhere who's offering his opinion (laughs) that perhaps one thing that President Trump did could possibly be grounds for impeachment. Right. If the Democrats ever (laughs) take over the House of Representatives. No, no, that's a good example. Um, You know, but what as someone who um, oftentimes will take the side of unpopular truths, I, I am uh, frustrated by the fact that uh, an unpopular truth in this environment has no chance uh, against a popular lie. Would you would you agree with that in general in, in this environment with regard to the Internet? Yes, uh, generally, although I'd hope it's a little higher than no chance, maybe. No, it's no chance. Minuscule chance or (laughs) small chance, but... well, and your and your site is devoted to that in a large part of, in a large way. I mean, you you yeah. sometimes take on subjects where the what you're telling people is not what they want to hear, and 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 how does how does that impact uh, you know your business model? Well, although I'd say that, well, every unpopular truth is somebody else's popular truth. So sometimes you know yeah. for every person who's rejoicing about an article claiming that global warming is a hoax. There are people (laughs) who are, um, you know, 
who are just as pleased by articles that are confirming that climate change is real. So, mm-hmm. you know, everything works both ways in a sense. Well, let's talk about uh, Snopes from that perspective. Yeah. I know, you know, as a conservative, I like the site a lot, but I know a lot of conservatives feel that you guys are biased in a liberal direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you address those concerns? Well, a lot of that is just misperception from people who aren't really following the site because if you I can't quote actual statistics but I think if you say looked and tallied all the political things we wrote over the last year or two you would find that say at least 90% or upwards of the articles that we wrote that dealt with say Donald Trump were debunking something negative about him that was not true um, and you know it was it's historically up until pretty much the last election cycle it had been the case that no matter which party was in the White House or controlled Congress that sort of 90% of the political stuff we were dealing with was anti-democratic, anti-liberal. There just wasn't nearly as much coming out about the other side on the so you guys, So you guys believe that you're nonpartisan? Yes. It's just when, you know, as you said, we, a lot of years when 90% of the stuff we're addressing is debunking stuff about Democrats and liberals, well, people perceive that as, well, you, you must be liberal yourself because you're always defending them. Well, no, that's just because that was what was out there. Mm-hmm. Kind of in this last election cycle, really, it's caught up. There's a lot of hyper-partisan websites on both sides, and I think that people who are actually reading everything that we put out rather than just focusing on the things that debunk something they want to believe would see were, you know, skewer both sides when they deserve it. To me, the essence of what you guys do is that you use um, logic and facts and cynicism <laughs> to uh, to look at things that just don't feel right and determine whether or not uh, they are. I've been astonished at how poor most humans are at being able to discern what's a fake uh, news story. Are you surprised by humans' inability to, to do that naturally? Our BS detectors are not very good, is what I'm trying to say. No, but, of course, in some sense, I mean, at least people who are a bit older, of course, have been brought up on the idea that news is is accurate and informative and all that hasn't, you know, has never been the case, at least, you know, it was to a large degree. I mean, now anybody can throw up a website that looks as professional and impressive as any the New York news, Times. Yeah, right. as any real <laughs> news organization. You just buy a WordPress template and right. in a, a day or two you're claiming to be some non existent paper like, you know, right. the uh, the <laughs> Seattle Observer or something. <laughs> so that that, that uh, feeds into it. Um, but are we bad BS detectors in general? Well I think in all things, I mean, it's the reason why we have specialties in our occupations and everything else. Nobody can know everything about everything. We have to depend on people, doctors, lawyers, you know, uh, you know, uh, trade workers, anybody, mechanics to to inform us about things we don't know about and understand. And and you know a lot of what we do you know a lot of times we get asked well how do you how do you do what you do how do you debunk all this stuff and of course there's no one answer because we cover such a broad array of material but a lot of it is simply say reading the text of a congressional bill and saying does it actually say that if passed it will do whatever or is that some ridiculously far-fetched interpretation of it or yeah, just reading, being able to read between the lines of a news story, if you can call it that, and, and think to yourself, well, what are they not telling you? Like, you know, you, if you would expect certain details to be in this story and they're not there, 
um, you know, things add up, don't add up. Um, you know, the general public isn't used to consuming news in that way. They're, they're used to it as like reading a book. You don't expect when you read a book, you're going to have to go look elsewhere to find stuff that was left out of that book that might be important. Well, but how, how would you suggest that the average consumer look at a story to determine whether or not it might not be real? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's tough to summarize because that can encompass a whole lot. But well, what are what are some of the things that you should look for? Some of the obvious things are, uh, in general, specificity of detail. It's like the old, you know, journalism creed. It should be telling you details of who and what and when and how and why. If you're reading a story about some fantastic thing that supposedly happened and the people involved aren't named or there's no location or there's no specific date, you know, you ought to start questioning it. And also um, it's now quite easy with the Internet. If something that's really important news has happened, you won't be reading about it on one obscure <laughs> website. You can really? quickly plug that into Google News and see... Uh, is this being reported elsewhere? Again, that's now, especially lately, that's not in itself a, a, a an effective measure. Because, no, I agree. Because one fake news story comes out and gets aggregated by a whole lot of other sides. Right, but there's also the other side, David, which is that there are situations where groupthink among the mainstream news media prevents a legitimate news story from getting seen in a wide uh, in, in a wide audience. I've well, seen that happen too. True. I mean, I'm speaking very broadly. No, no, no. I, I agree that in the general, absolutely, in general, that's something that people should look for. Is that if it's not being reported, it's a big, if it sounds like a big story yeah. and it's not being reported anywhere else, that's an indication yeah. that there's a problem. I like what you said, though, about the the basic who, what, when, where, and why. Um, One story that that I was all over and and Snopes was all over uh, occurred last December. I think we were really the first two that figured out this was a hoax was a story involving a Santa Claus in Tennessee. uh, (laughs) The the, The dying child. The dying child, right. And when I read that story, I was like, this can't possibly be true because there are no details where there should be Tons of details. Yeah. And yet that was a story that because it was so viral and the news media loved it so much and no one wanted to destroy the fake yeah. Santa Claus, that the media never, they just dropped it instead of finding out the truth of it. They didn't want the truth. This was like yes. Spinal Tap. This is one of those <laughs> crimes better left unsolved. Um, yeah. Do you remember that story? Yes, exactly. And it's, it uh, echoes what I was saying earlier about there is unfortunately still some bad reporting where you know, the, the outlets just want to get the story that grabs people's attention out there and they don't really want to probe too deeply into, well, did this really happen and is there information confirming this that you know this has ever happened? Um, it's just, it's a good story. Like, yeah. like, like, let's check the obituaries and find out if any five-year-old boys in, in Knoxville, Tennessee died in the last yeah. month, which we I mean, did, and there was nothing. Yeah, although uh, and, I wouldn't agree, perhaps, that it couldn't be true because there were no No, no, but the point is that yeah. there, there's, it, it, well, it, I mean, I don't want to... It sets the alarms ringing, yes. Right, that's yeah. what, I mean, that doesn't prove it, but that gets you going, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, yeah. and the, what I always go back to, David, is if a story really happened... Yeah. like this one, there would be evidence everywhere. Like, because when a five-year-old boy dies, there's a funeral (laughs) attended by hundreds of people, and this story is going to be told. And therefore, you're going to have hundreds of people coming forward and saying, oh my gosh, it was horrible, I remember, right? Yeah, so that that sort of reflects, you know, when I'm often asked, like, how, uh, you know, sort of our business has changed you know, since we started 20-something years ago. And, you know, one of the aspects I always mention is just sort of speed that, you know, we started out back before social media and search engines even when stuff was pretty much spread exclusively by email and it took weeks for a story to kind of build up and go viral through email forwards. But now, as I say, somebody posts something interesting or unusual or outrageous on Facebook and 
within half an hour, it's a headline in, you know, the New York Post. <laughs> so when, you know, you, you said when something like that happens, oh, you know, child's last wish to die in Santa Claus's arms, you know, you wouldn't be seeing it in just a few odd, you know, or local news outlets. This would be a major headline story everywhere with the grieving parents. And by the way, it wouldn't take a couple of weeks for the story yeah, to nor, be, re- nor be that reported. Either. Yeah, that's my point. It's yeah. kind of like with, within a half hour, there'd been, you know, probably a dozen media outlets trying to interview the parents and the Santa Claus and the neighbors. And, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that that's important information for people to use to evaluate the, these kinds of situations themselves. Yeah. I want to address one other issue with you, David, which I've already uh, alluded to, but I think it's really important, and I'm curious whether you do. And is that with regard to the news media in this day and age, yes, we are incredibly fragmented, but I see a lot of groupthink within that fragmentation among what is so-called the so-called mainstream news media. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would think that more voices and outlets would decrease uh, groupthink, Uh but in a weird way, I think it has increased it. Because uh, I think that there are there is a fear of going outside of what I call the herd. Uh-huh. Uh, because if you go outside the herd on on a particularly go- a big or controversial story, you might get run over. And um, and and in the news media, the greatest fear any of these people have is to lose their gigs. Because getting another yeah. good one is very difficult. Uh-huh. Do you do you see what I'm talking about with regard to groupthink and how it can sometimes create effectively false stories because everybody in the news media is seeing the same story through the same prism and wants to be part of the herd. Do you see that? To some extent, yes. I mean, it used to be like a maxim in the automobile industry that none of the big three automakers would do anything too innovative or anything mm-hmm. that got them too far out mm-hmm. ahead of the other two because that would create problems for the whole industry and you know imperil them. And I think that's true in the news industry. Well, for some reasons. One, of course, is a lot of reporting is not original, it just feeds off of other reporting. So, you know, one or two sources report something and then a whole bunch of others are picking it up from them, which kind of tends to spread the the same story over and over and over um, without, you know, most of the downstream ones going back upstream to check out anything or report anything original. And there's also just the danger of if, you know, six or eight major news organizations are reporting something and you report something different, it either creates the impression either they're not truthful or you're wrong. Mm. And, you know, it's bad either way, but it's especially bad if it's perceived as, well, you're the one who's wrong because all these other 10 or 12 are saying something different. And, you know, certainly we've experienced that, you know, on a somewhat smaller scale before, you know, we, we, encounter something that's in the news and we see it's not being reported correctly that they say only one side was covered and we're saying well you know it seems like there's this whole other aspect of the story that's not out there and then we start hearing from readers oh you're wrong because these other eight places all said something different so there you know there is kind of a danger in being the outlier um again it may be fostered in the current environment as we kind of need to stick together to gang up on fake news and so you know we've got to sort of remain in the safety of the herd you know until we've got we we've got this contained well let me then end on david with, with where we kind of began with donald trump yes. and, and that is i'm curious where you think we're headed here uh, with trump and specifically with regard to that do you believe as i do and many others do that trump is specifically targeting real news as fake news as a way to uh, inoculate himself from any negative negative news stories that may come his way uh, in the future well, you know, there's a lot of opinion of everything from he's just <laughs> poorly informed to he's very canny and savvy about how to manipulate the media. And like most other things, there's probably some, there's probably no one right answer. There's probably elements of truth and falsity to all of that. And I said, certainly it's a new phenomenon for, again, the press and the public to be dealing with, which is a president who seemingly just 
spreading misinformation and disdaining anything that corrects it. Um, I, I think probably based on seeing what what it is that he speaks about and what he cites and what he tweets about, that yes, he's getting his information from a sort of limited subset of, of outlets that probably tend to report the kind of things he's already inclined to believe. Uh, so, um, so where are we headed with him? Well, I don't know. He may, it, I can't predict. I mean, he may eventually find that that's not an effective technique and he's not going to be able to govern that way and he's going to have to start doing things differently. Uh, it may turn out that uh, no one anticipated that it turns out to work very well. And but, but I mean, I guess I'm curious. Do you think that Trump is good or bad for Snopes? Because in a weird, <laughs> in, in a, in a weird way, I mean, obviously he created a, a lot of attention on this issue that you guys deal with on a yes. daily basis. But in another way, hasn't he muddied the water so much now that it's almost impossible to get a definitive answer on anything because we're living in this post-truth world? Well, true. I mean, Donald Trump or no Donald Trump, we would have had plenty to keep us busy. But, um, well, yes, he has kind of muddied the water about the distinction between real news and fake news. But it's kind of hard to quantify that because, of course, you know, with us, like anything political, there's always going to be some subset of followers who believe in you and won't be dissuaded and there's going to be some subset of followers who just refuse to believe you and won't be persuaded no matter what so it's like with elections how big is that sort of subset of people in the middle who can be swayed one way or the other and you know i said we're only a couple of months into the Donald Trump presidency, so we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. I mean, the the one thing I've learned, well, one of the things I've learned from this, of course, along with there's, you know, nothing too incredible that <laughs> you can immediately discount it is is that the the folly of trying to predict what's going to come next, uh, and, and you know where trends are going to go. So, you know, I. Don't know how it will play out, just that we'll be along for the ride. <laughs> Fair enough. Well said. Uh, David Mickelson from uh, Snopes.com. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So that'll do it for our number two for this week's World According to Zig podcast. However, we're going to offer a bonus hour this week, hour number three, because this was well, this week was my 50th birthday, and I'll be providing some rather deep and I'm pretty sure <laughs> unique Thoughts on the nature of life, plus an update on the uh, Penn State case, which has been impacting my life in quite a number of ways over the last five years. So a bonus hour coming up in hour number three. As usual, all I ask of you is to just do two things. Share this podcast via Twitter, Facebook, other social media, or just by word of mouth. And number two, uh, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets. Make sure you pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.